You're listening to the New City Church Sermon Podcast. We exist to love God, to love our neighbors, and to make known the good news of Jesus Christ. To this end, we seek to cultivate a spirit-filled, gospel-centered community that multiplies disciples of Jesus and churches for the glory of God, the joy of all people, and the good of the city. If you'd like to learn more about New City, including service times, discipleship pathways, and opportunities to serve and fellowship with us, please visit us online at newcitykc.org. you have a Bible, turn with me to Genesis uh, chapter 11. Uh, we've been walking through uh, the scriptures. We actually are spending the next uh, six, seven, eight months uh, walking through Genesis to Revelation and looking at kind of big swaths of scripture, but seeing this theme that Jesus is on every uh, page, that when we want to read the scriptures well, it's not just a book of morality or wisdom, but it's really about a God who comes to redeem and restore all things. And so we're looking for those whispers of, of Jesus on every uh, uh, page. And so we're going to continue our journey through the scriptures, uh, looking at uh, Abraham today. Um, and there's a lot of chapters here, but we're only going to highlight a few of them to kind of give you the, the big picture uh, this morning. But I'm going to start in the end of chapter 11 to give us a little context. So Genesis chapter 11, uh, starting in verse uh, 30. And I'll read a couple of verses of 12, and then we'll jump around a little bit. But if you have a Bible, Genesis chapter 11, starting verse 30. Here's what it says. Now, Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, his son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abraham's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Chapter 12, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house, the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is the word of God for us. Uh, This morning. So, if you have been around the scriptures, or you're familiar with the Bible, or you've been tracking with us as a as a church, we can kind of summarize this. And maybe you've noticed the first couple chapters of Genesis are amazing. God creates the heavens and the earth. He creates us in His image. He creates the animals. He he creates all the plants. What is seen and unseen. And then Adam and Eve kind of make a mess of things and disobey God, and they're banished out of the Garden of. Eden. And what I said last week is that the, the movement, the, 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 the posture now is everyone is living east of Eden, which is another way of saying that everyone is living out of the presence of God. Sin has entered, evil has entered, cancer has entered, everything in the world and everything in our life walks with a limp. Everything keeps moving east of Eden. And that's chapters 3 to 12 where we're going to pick it up today. But there's also, if you notice, there's also another theme that God wants to make really clear through Genesis is there's this this idea of separation. God separates light and darkness. He separates animals and plants. He separates days and seasons. He separates humans from the animals. And then he makes, and then he separates the line of Adam and Noah and their descendants from one another. And then he makes a pivotal separation where we're going to pick it up today by choosing Abraham to be a family among families that has a special mission and a special calling for him, that you're going to be distinct from all the other families, all the other tribes, all the other clans in all the world. I have a special 
mission for you. It's a, a mission of blessing, of uh, a mission of cosmic renewal, that, that even though everyone is living east of Eden, everyone has, has turned away from God and they're trying to build their own lives and build their own foundations apart from God, as we saw last week in the Tower of Babel, We'll build this tower up to the gods and we'll worship these false gods. We'll do it on our own. We won't listen to God. We'll do our own thing. God has a plan of redemption and blessing through this man, Abram, and through his, his family, which will later become Abraham. And, and just so you know, if I say Abraham, it's Abraham, Abram. His name changes later, but um, we'll just call him, him Abraham for ease. But there's this plan of redemption, and it's, it's such an amazing picture of, of God and his mercy and his, his grace. Because if you read the scriptures, I know God gets a bad rap. Like the Old Testament seems like he's mad and he's angry and all these things. But, but the reality is, look at what humans are doing. They're trying to live their lives apart from God's best, from his grace and his mercy. He's given them everything. Here's this garden. Here's this earth to live and to flourish with me and with each other, right? But we said, no, thank you. And yet... Even in the chaos, and yet, even when Noah, who's been called by God to save the world after the flood, is drunk in a tent, God still pursues with grace and still pursues with mercy. He says, I, have not, I am not done with my creation. I'm not done blessing and redeeming it and restoring it. And what the people need at this point of redemptive history is a word from God, a voice of God, a fresh revelation of God. Because remember, as I, you might have picked it up last week, is that they're surrounded by these, the Babylonians and other uh, uh, nations and countries and, and people that worshiped other gods. And God wanted to give them a, a reminder, don't build this temple to this false God. Worship the true God. He, he, he scatters them because he doesn't want things to continue to go off the rails. And what God is going to do this morning is he's going to give them a fresh revelation of who he is through these covenants, primarily with Abraham. That in a covenant, God is revealing his character, his nature, his heart, his desire for relationship with humanity. And so we see these covenants all through the Old Testament, and we, we see even forms of that in, in the new. But, but God's going to, to come to, to, to Abraham and to remind them what God is really like, to show him his mercy, to show him his grace, that even though the world is dark and even though everyone has walked away and is living east of Eden, I'm going to come and make a promise with you and ensure that the whole world will be redeemed. And so what I want to do this morning is just look for a few moments together at these, this covenant that God has made with Abraham. And the first part of the covenant, or I should say the foundation of the covenant, is really a global promise. There's a global promise woven into this covenant that God's going to make with Abraham. And maybe you, you picked it up there. But it's really important to kind of see the context that you notice that Abraham and his family are already on the move. They're already moving away east of Eden. They already have their own, own plan. We see that in verse 30 and 31, that Terah took Abraham, his son, and Lot, son of Haran, his grandson, Sarah, Sarai, daughter-in-law, son of Abraham's wife, and they're moving to Ur, the Chaldeans, in the land of, of Canaan. They're just following the plot. They're doing what everyone else is doing. Everyone else is moving east of Eden. Here's Abraham and his family. They're doing the same thing, right? We're getting out of Dodge. We're just going to go and maybe find other opportunity somewhere else. There's nothing that suggests in Abraham here that, that somehow he's a, a godly man or he's a moral man or he's trying to worship and love God. There's nothing 
even close to that happening here. He's just like everyone else that was worshiping at the Tower of Abel. They're all moving east of Eden. His family is moving east of Eden, away from the presence of God. But isn't it fascinating when we pick it up in chapter 12, it says, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your kindred, your, your father's house to the land that I will show you. God is unprovoked here. There, there's nothing in Abraham that he, he doesn't say a prayer. God, get us out of this mess. Help us provide for us. There isn't any sense of obedience or love or worship or anything. God just comes unprovoked. Hey, here's what I want you to do. Here's how I'm going to bless you and your family. That they're already moving, which would be modern-day Baghdad um, near Iraq, and they have their own plans. But notice here that, that God shows up unprovoked and says, I have a plan for you for cosmic renewal. I have a promise to bless you and your families, and through you, you're going to be a blessing to the nations. Like, like, I don't know what grace looks like to you, but that's a beautiful little snippet of how it works. This is how the gospel works. It's not because of your superiority or morality or obedience or commitment that God goes, hey, no, I'm going to love you. It's because your life is put together and everything's going great. And then God says, okay, now we have something to work with. That's not how the gospel works. Here's a man just like everyone else moving east of Eden with his own plans out of the presence of God. And God shows up and says, I have a, a cosmic plan to bless you and your, your families. Now, a couple other details. Notice that, that it says here, I don't know if you caught the little, little phrase there, but he, he says, um, go from your country, your kindred, your father's house to the land that I will show you. That's an important detail, the father's house. It's another way of saying all your possessions, all your stuff, that's part of it. All your belongings that are part of this family. But this is also important. It also means the gods in which you worship. There's nothing here that suggests that he's a worshiper of Yahweh at this point. He is not. But part of the package deal was I want you to leave your gods behind as well. Because they're just as influenced as everyone else, right? That was the, the Tower of Babel. They're worshiping these Babylonian gods, these false gods, these Assyrian gods. Whatever God was listening, you need to leave all those behind as well. I have a revelation for you. I'm going to show you who the true God is and what he is like. To leave country, to leave family, to leave your possessions would also mean whatever God you worship in the home, you are to leave that behind as well. And this promise is going to require them to be obedient to a world they don't know. And they, there's no details about what country this is, where this is, right? There's no back and forth like, hey, do they have water there? Do they have food there, right? There's no conversation of, is it a good place? Is it plentiful? He just says, you need to go and leave everything you know, everything that is comfortable behind. And... Again, what a beautiful glimpse of the gospel here, that despite all the sin and barrenness, now this is interesting, like we see Sarah's barren, she can't have children, but it's also another way of saying the whole land is barren. This is a spiritually barren place, a spiritually barren time in history. There's nothing that suggests that, that people are, yes, God, whatever you want us to do, we, we want your shalom. We want to flourish in the land. We want a relationship with you. We want to flourish together. There's nothing that suggests that at all. And yet here is God showing up again and again to Abraham, who is unworthy of any of this, most likely worshiping foreign gods. There's no moral superiority here. There's nothing that suggests he is worthy of this mission, of this calling. 
And we don't have time this morning, but go read the next 10 chapters of Genesis. This is not, yes, Lord, whatever you want, Lord. This is Abraham selling out his wife, lying, cheating, all kinds of shady characters coming in to the picture. And yet this is the mess and this is what God has to work with. It's the only thing he has to work with. Amen? It's the same today. This is it. Like, there's nothing else to work with. Like, he has to work with broken sticks and sinful people. There is no other thing to work with. We're all in the same lot. But he comes with this blessing, this global promise. Notice here, go from your country, your kindred, your father's house, verse 2, and I will make of you a great nation. Notice here, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Notice the I will statements. I will do this. I will ensure this happens. If someone curses you, I will curse them back. This is all of God's doing. This is a commitment on God's behalf. I'm going to make sure, Abraham, that your prom- these promises come true. And remember Abraham, if you know the scriptures at all, is that remember Abraham's uh, in his 80s and 90s and so is Sarah and they can't have children. And he says, even in a barren womb, I will ensure that your wife has a child so this plan can happen. I will do it. I will make it happen. You can see the commitment of God. You can see his character, his nature, that that I will make sure these promises come true. I know you don't understand where we're going. I know you have been asked to leave your country and what is familiar and all your possessions and even your own gods and your identity and, and, and what feels secure, but just trust me in this. I will make sure this blessing comes. I will make sure these promises come about because there's something bigger going on. There's cosmic renewal that is going to happen. There's salvation that's going to come through Abraham and your family. Just trust me. And I wonder, as I look at the story of Genesis and as I look at the life of Abraham, is that this man was not full of faith. He had many moments of doubt and fear, and I don't know what's going on. And that's why he sells out his wife and does other things. Is because guess what? When fear comes in, you get nervous. So instead of trusting God, what do you do? You sin. You go like, I don't trust you, so I'm going to do this, right? I'm going to figure it out on my own, right? I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to do my own thing, right? I don't know about this God. He seems kind of odd. And I wonder, as I look at this story, and I wonder, as we look at Genesis, and as I wonder, as we look at the scriptures with all of these broken, flawed humans, that in our day of where we're seeing so many people, what some have called deconstructing their faith, I wonder if maybe we haven't given them an Abrahamic vision of faith, one that allows for doubt, one that allows for fear, one that allows a a faith that doesn't have all the answers, but a childlike trust that says, I don't know the future. I'm full of fear and doubt. I'm not really sure, but, but, but a God who is big enough and gracious enough and merciful enough that can fulfill his promises. Because I don't know what scriptures the world reads, but it's maybe not the one I'm reading because everyone's a screw up. Does that comfort anyone in here? right? Like everyone, they're like, there's not one. There's like maybe half a person that might get it right. But, but look at all the people that God comes to and makes promises to and uses their life. Have you heard of Jeremiah, the prophet, the whiny prophet, right? Always complaining, woe is me, he's in a ditch naked. I mean, he's just, there's all kinds of problems with this guy. Like this is the people that God uses, 
I'm not worried. I can't do this. I, you know, I know I'm supposed to be your prophet, but I, right? How about the apostle Paul, who was Saul? He's a, a murderer of Christians. Doesn't want anything to do with Jesus. And yet here Jesus says, it says, hey, I have a plan for you. You're gonna be my greatest missionary that the world has ever seen. Actually, the movement of Christianity is gonna be partly on your back. This was not a man that you would pick out on you know, LinkedIn and go like, yeah, I mean, his resume is really impressive. I think he's our guy. I mean, HR would be like, are you kidding me? Have you lost your mind? I don't think a murderer of Christians is the guy we want to you know, keep the movement going. Have you read about the disciples of Jesus? These men just full of faith, full of love and trust, right? Whatever you want, Jesus, we're your guys. Or the opposite. But yet here is God making these promises, these men and these women that, that, that God comes to and says, I have a promise for you that through your life, I'm going to redeem and restore all things. And I don't break my promises. The same God that, that, that Abraham worshiped and the same God that Noah worshiped and the same God that Paul worshiped is the same God that comes to us today. He has not changed. And he's the one who comes to people like you and me that are full of fear and full of doubt and full of pain and brokenness and sin. And God comes and says, I'm going to redeem and fulfill my promises through you. And I think we need to get these stories in our bones, in our souls, to remember this God hasn't changed. This is how he works. Nothing's changed. This is our story together, right? So when you're feeling that sense of like loss or confusion or you're asking me to do something that's really difficult, we can remember a guy like Abraham and go, well, my situation is probably not as complicated as Abraham. God seemed to work through that. Maybe he can still work through me. Maybe I can trust him for, with my life. And so as we keep moving through Genesis, we see the, the pinnacle of this promise is, is that God is coming to Abraham, to this barren family, to this barren land, and he's going to bring blessing and promise to it to redeem and restore all things. And now we're going to see a little bit, in a little bit deeper way, this covenant that he makes is really about this global grace project that he's, he's up to. And so we see God's revelation and grace more clearly. So the workings of this covenant is a, a global grace project. Now flip over to chapter 17. And God's going to begin to put more details into this covenant that he's making with Abraham to be a blessing to him so he can be a blessing to others so that we ultimately can be a blessing to our world. And in chapter 17, it says, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. And this is why they named their son the son of laughter, right? This isn't supposed to happen this way. 99-year-olds aren't supposed to have children. It's laughable, right? Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And then Abraham fell on his face and God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after, your, after you throughout the generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. 
And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout the generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Now, this is a, an amazing promise and a covenant that God is making with Abraham. And, and covenants in the, in the scriptures, they aren't like contracts because they're a little bit different. Is it a contract really is we make up a contract and you do this and I do this. And if, if you break any of it, we cut it up and we throw it away and it's, it's broken, right? But this is a little bit different. It has more of a relational tone to it. And they're very common in the ancient world. And in ancient, ancient cultures, what we would happen is two nations would often come together and say, if you protect me, I'll protect you. Or if you protect me, we'll give you this. There's certain stipulations that are to happen in a covenant, in a, a contract like this, even though it's not fully a, a contract. But there's agreements that are made on both sides. And this is what God is saying to Abraham. There's certain things I want you to do. I want you to trust me and I'm going to, to bless you. But what you notice in the covenant is most of the primary hero and most of the, the, the weight is put on God. I'm going to do this through you. I'm going to make this happen through you. This isn't, hey, if you can get your act together, maybe well, some good things will happen. This is God initiating, God making the promise. God saying, I'm going to multiply you and make your name great. Like, isn't that so true? Like, unless Sarah is able to have a child, none of this, all of this goes off the rails. Well, who makes that happen? God makes that happen. I mean, we know how babies are made, but there's something that has to, God has to make this a reality. His promises have to come true. He's the one that has to deliver them to the promised land. It's a little bit different than a contract. God is putting himself out there to say, all of these promises will be yours. Now, all these promises are in the future because all of grace is always in the future. It's coming. It's not here yet. It's not fully, even our salvation now, it's not here yet. We haven't fully seen, even as we said that confession, new heavens and new earth, it's not here yet. All the promises are future. They are coming. But how does that shape our lives if we know the promises are coming in the present? It changes everything, right? We don't have to have all the details. We don't know. We don't have to have a promise of a life that goes perfectly well because your life never will. There's always suffering and pain and sorrow. But he's making this promise to Abraham, and he's making this promise in blood. Did you notice the sign of circumcision in verse 10? This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And then when we jump down to verse 23, we see Abraham do, being obedient to this. He says, then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in the house and brought or brought with the money every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. It's a covenant with blood. That was very common in the ancient world. There often was an animal that was involved, and blood had to be shed to make this promise and make the parties come together to say, this is true. We're going to hold up our end of the bargain. But isn't that fascinating? These little children that don't know anything of God, don't know of anything of these promises, don't, don't have any clue of what's going on. He's making a future promise to them to say, all of your household, even before they believe, that's why we baptize children of believers here at this church. 
because we believe all the grace is future, all the promises are future. It's not just, just my confession of faith, but it's what God has said to be true, right? So it's a future promise. That just trust these promises. They will come true even before you believe. And then when you believe, we'll celebrate the reality that God again came through on his promises. Again, a stunning moment of mercy. What God is like this? Remember last week we talked about these Babylonian gods making this, ba- this, this ziggurat up to God. And the, the problem with these gods was you never know if they're happy. You never know if you've done enough. So they feed these gods. They house these gods, right? But God never tells you if it's enough. And yet here's a God who's making the first move, saying it has nothing to do with your ability to appease me or morality or obedience. It has more to do with me and my mercy and my promises than it has to do with you. I'm banking your future on what I'm going to accomplish. And so as we see these, these covenants being made, this covenant that, that is marked with blood. As you keep going through, you'll notice there'll be all these different details throughout chapters 12 all the way to the 17, this blood sacrifice. But then if you jump back to chapter 15, something interesting happens. Now, again, this is why I mentioned an Abrahamic kind of faith. He's not just, yes, Lord, whatever you want, I'll do it. Verse 15 makes that really clear, or chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. God knows Abraham's scared. Is that like when the angel shows up to Mary in the Gospels? Fear not. When the angel shows up to Joseph, fear not. This all seems Absolutely absurd. I get it, (laughs) right? Abraham doesn't even know who this God really is. And you're asking me to leave everything and somehow there's gonna be some cosmic salvation and blessing coming through me. I think that's a a moment where we need to say, this is who God is, that, that in our moments of, I don't get this, I don't fully understand this, God moves in with the first word and a last word and says, fear not. I am your shield I am your reward. Your reward's going to be very great. I'm the one who will ultimately protect you. God, again, making the first move. So Abram's full of fear. Okay, what? this is nutso, but okay, I'm, I'm trying to listen here. God shows up, calms his fear, and then he falls into a deep sleep. Verse 8 which is kind of the setup to the bizarre vision. Verse eight says, but he said, oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? In other words, how do, you, how do I know you're gonna come through? He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these things, cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcass, Abram drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years, which we see in Exodus, the beginning of Exodus, which comes true. 
But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So God is saying this land, these possessions, all of this is going to get dark for a little while, but this will come true. And then notice what happens. And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites, and the Mosquito Bites. Oh, sorry, I have a little different version here. See if you're paying attention. Little Bible humor. There you go. It's as good as it gets, folks. But he's making this promise. He shows up to, to Abraham and he gives him this vision. These animals are cut in half. Again, in, a, in an ancient covenant, there's this blood that has to be shed. And often what they would do was walk between the animals. And the reason they walked between the animals, this was not a beautiful ceremony. This was another way of with your enemies when you were a nation and you were saying, I will bring you peace, I will protect you in this war if you do certain things, is basically, if you break your promise, I will tear you apart like these animals. It was a visual. It was a dark, gross test visual to say, hold up your end of the bargain. Now, that's a typical covenant in the ancient world. What happens here is God gives Abram a vision, and this fire pot, we notice in verse 17, comes down. A smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passes between these pieces. This is not normal. This fire pot, most commentators would suggest, is, represents God and the presence of God. That God in this vision is the one that's going between the animals. He's saying, I'm going to fulfill this covenant of promise of cosmic renewal of this global grace project. He's not trying to scare them like they would in the ancient world where two people would walk through between these animals and say, hey, don't get out of line because you're going to get torn apart like these animals. That God is actually going ahead of them. God is already fulfilling his promises. He's already showing them grace and mercy through this vision to say, Abraham, I know you don't understand what's going on. I know you're full of fear. I know all the details look scary and the first step of faith is really difficult, but I'm going ahead of you. I'm going to make sure these promises come true. I'm walking ahead of you. And what we know of scripture and what we know of history is that Abraham's going to sin. Isaac's going to make a mess of things. Jacob's a deceiver and a hustler. And if you follow the lines of screw-ups and failures and Thieves and murderers and the unfaithful. Israel, Israel on a whole is going to be unfaithful. The people of God will continue to fail. But in this covenant, a promise is being made, a, a global grace project that through this family, through these misfits, through these people that don't have great faith, who are going to fall on their faces, who are going to deceive and be liars, through this line is going to be someone who's going to ensure that these promises come true that Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and through you, there's going to be a great cosmic blessing through my people from generation to generation. 
And I'm the one who's walking ahead like the vision in the fire pot to ensure that it happens. It's not all on you. Isn't that good news? I think there's too much me, me, Christianity. I think there's too much of my will. I got to do, we got to change the world. We got to save the world. I actually had a, a funny moment with one of my sons. And I, I don't know if you've noticed the summer weather of late, um, but we're sitting around uh, having lunch. And he's like, dad, is the world just going to explode at some point? Didn't really have an answer for him, but yes, son, it is getting very hot and it is a weird day, right? Just kind of in a teenage way, right? Dad's just going to explode. I'm like, I don't know. But it's stinking hot. <laughs> I do need some water on my grass. That's one thing. Um, but the reality is, as much as we want to bring change, yes and amen, God has called us to be a blessing to those around us. We'll get to that in just a moment. But it's not on, all, all, on us. Because there's a God who's a fire pot and a vision who walks before us, who says, I will do it. I will make it happen. We all can breathe and we can rest in those realities. We don't have to know everything. We don't have to see everything. We don't have to have the answers to a complex world and complex people. God is going ahead of us to ensure that his cosmic plan of redemption, his cosmic plan of global grace, the global grace project will happen. You can bank your life on it. And he keeps showing up to Abraham. He shows up to David. He shows up to Moses. He shows up to Mary. He shows up to Joseph. He shows up to the disciples. He continually reminds them that these promises are true and they will come to fruition. You can bank your life on it. So what do we do with all these promises and, and covenants? What does it mean for us as a church? What is our, our mission as a church because of this and as God's people because of this? Because of this global grace project? I think it's important for us, um, I mentioned that through this line of, of Abraham, obviously the one who's going to come and fulfill all of these promises finally and fully is Jesus through his life and his death and his resurrection. And God makes this promise to, to Abraham, I will bless you so you can be a blessing to others. I think that's the important piece. If you want to begin to understand our calling as God's people, as a church, is that we've been blessed, we've been redeemed, we've been shown grace and mercy. Why? So that we can be a blessing to others. So I think we need to first get in our brains, get in our hearts, get in our souls, is that we are recipients and receivers of grace. Now, for me to say that, I think for a lot of us, it's like, okay, I get that. Yeah, it's grace, grace, right? God comes, he redeems us. It's nothing we can do. It's nothing we earn. Grace alone, faith alone, yes and amen. But I want you to think about it in the ancient world. I want you to think about how much this meant to God showing up with a covenant of relationship to say, I'm going to bless you regardless of your morality or your obedience. In the ancient world, as I've mentioned, these Babylonian Assyrian gods was, we never know when the gods are happy. We live our whole lives in fear because we never know if we've worshiped them rightly. We never know if we've given enough. We never know if we're sacrificial enough. And that's why God is trying to turn that idea of what, who God is on its head and say, that's not how I work. I come to you, even my enemies. I come when you haven't done enough. Did Abraham do enough? No. Did Sarah do enough? No. Did Isaac do enough? No. I come in mercy and grace because that's who I am. You can never measure up to a God who is holy and perfect in every way, but that's the good news of the gospel. 
And so we get grace as this thing we receive, this, this thing is nothing we could, could do or earn. It's grace upon grace. How could we, and I think it's also important that even though we understand it as a salvific grace, it's also just the grace that God even tells us and shows us what he's like. What a gift of grace that is. Like, here's these people that need to know what this God is and what he's like. We have the scriptures. Like, like I know for some of us, it's just a doorstop. But God has spoken here. God has revealed himself here. And we don't know everything. And it's, there's mystery here. And there's confusion here. And there's different languages here. We get that. We're not saying this thing's easy to understand. But God has not left us in the dark. That in his grace and in his mercy, just that goes so against the other gods is I'm actually going to show you who I am and what I'm like and what I desire and what I'm up to in the world. That in and of itself is a gift of mercy. The fact he would give us laws and commands to say, actually, these are really good for you. That's why the psalmist always gushes over the laws of God. Like, I love your law. It's like honey on my lips. Like, that sounds kind of weird. Like, do not commit adultery. Do not, right? I mean, how is that honey? It's honey because we know when we don't live like that, guess what? Our lives go off the rails. And it's not good for you. And it's not good for your neighbor. It's not good for the world. That's why they gush over these gifts of grace. These things are good for you. They give life to you. They allow you to flourish and not just do whatever you think, thinking you're smarter or wiser than God. So we get that. That's, that's a, a, another picture of grace. But I think the, the place where we need to really dig into, and I'm not calling New City out in general, I'm just calling Big C Church out, is how can we be better dispensers and agents and extenders of grace? The same grace and blessing you've received, it doesn't seem to terminate all that often on other people. It seems like we've become grace collectors and grace hoarders. And if you are a hoarder in here, I apologize, but if you've ever been to a hoarder's house, like a genuine hoarder, actually have, it's very terrifying. You walk in and there's just stuff piled up, right? There's just a narrow little thing and they were just collecting trash and all kinds of things. If you ever watch the show Hoarders, it's terrifying. But sometimes in the Christian faith, that's what it becomes. We're just these hoarders of grace. It's all mine, mine, mine. Yes, isn't grace amazing? Isn't grace amazing? But it never seems to terminate on anyone else, right? Well, this is mine, but that's not for you. And so Philip Yancey calls it being collectors of grace, but we also need to be dispensers of grace. Is, is the church known as a gracious community? a community of blessing? Is the church known for forgiving others because they know how deeply they've been forgiven? Is the church known for loving their enemies and their neighbors because they know how deeply they've been loved by their God? Is the, the church a generous community, a generous people because they know how eternally generous God has been to them? Is the church charitable to those that disagree with them because we know how charitable God has been to us? Here's a fun fact. You and I don't know everything. There's so much freedom in that. Just say it out loud. I don't know everything. Just say it. It'll feel good. I don't know everything. I'm actually pretty dumb most days. 
Like, like we act as if we have it all figured out. If we just vote this way, if we just treat climate this way, if we just do this and, and be about this cause and be about this thing, we act as if we know and we see everything clearly, but we do not. And that's why we need the wisdom of God. That's why we need the mercies of God. And that's not to say there aren't smart people doing smart things in the world. We're not saying that at all. But there's a complexity to people. There's a complexity to their stories. How many times have I judged someone based on their appearance alone without hearing who, about who they are in their story? Any amens to that? Right? How many times, because of knowing whatever, I made extreme judgments about them and their character and their story? We all do it. Is the church going to be a people that understand how deeply they've been blessed. And now their call is to go be a blessing to the world. Like the most radical thing that just kind of confuses people is to show grace to people that don't deserve it. They don't know what to do with it because that's how grace works, right? Because everything in culture, everything in your life is about achievement and about if you do this, then you'll get this. If you're loving, then you'll get love, right? If you work hard at your job, then you'll get the promotion, right? Everything's not based on, it's based on performance. It's based on achieving. It's based on climbing up. And so what happens is that comes into our souls and that gets in our hearts and we begin to treat people in a transactional way. If you do good, then you'll get, right? We do that with our kids all the time. I know there's punishment. I know there's, you know, you don't, we always say you don't want to reward bad behavior, but the gospel would also say, but God rewards bad behavior all the time. We're Christians because he rewards bad behavior. And it's a hard thing to comprehend, but that's what's so backwards about grace. That's what's so backwards about the kingdom in the gospel is actually to just show up to people and go, I bless you. I may not agree with you. I may not think what you're doing is great, but I'm here to listen and to forgive and to be a blessing to you, our mission as a church is to be a blessing because we've been blessed. And that can take on small ways and huge ways. That's the fun of walking with God. That's the fun with walking in a community is there's no right or wrong way to do this, but to say there's all kinds of opportunities for us to be a blessing in our work, in our families, in our neighborhoods, with our coworkers, wherever we are. What are the ways in which I can be a blessing to someone else today? And I don't want to get specific because then that's not fun. And that's just... Well, pastor said, do this. But what would it look like to day to day prayerfully ask the question, okay, God, you've blessed me long ago through this crazy guy, Abraham. You said through this family, and now I'm part of the, the family. How can I be a blessing in your hands today? And I think there's a diagnostic that we have to do that I think is important. Because I think there's a direct correlation to how much we understand our own salvation and what God has done for us and how much we bless and show grace to other people. That if our grace coercion coming out of our lives is very small, then that probably means you don't fully comprehend the gospel of grace or it's very small in your life. If we're not able to forgive, and I'm not saying forgiveness is easy, that's not what I'm saying, but if we're not able to forgive people, then we don't fully grasp the forgiveness that's been given to us. If we have a hard time loving other people, there's a good chance, like First John would tell us, that maybe we haven't fully grasped the love that's been extended to us. We're becoming grace hoarders and love hoarders. So I think it's important for us just to, to contemplate that, to reflect on that, to think like in those moments when I'm 
short changing someone of grace or, or calling them this or that or, or not forgiving or, or not being a, a blessing. Well, maybe I haven't fully understand how much blessing God has shown me and how much grace he's shown me. And this is not about never calling out sin or correcting or that's not what we're saying at all. But it's about being patient as God is patient to us. It's about extending forgiveness to people that aren't deserving of forgiveness because that's what the good news is about. And that's why Jesus came, that he's the one who came to fulfill this covenant that happened long, long time ago with Abraham to keep the promises of God that we're gonna fail, we're gonna sin, we're gonna fall on our face. We just sang about it, right? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, to leave the God I love. Anybody ever feel prone to wander? It's going to happen, but Jesus has come to fulfill those promises, to hold us, to, to, to make sure that we make it to the end. He's going to be with us when we become grace hoarders and we fail to share it, when we become stingy. We don't offer forgiveness as we should. When we're not as generous as we should. He's going to cover us even in that. And Jesus is going to be faithful to the end as he proves, as he's bloodied and broken and sacrificed on the cross to ensure that the nations would come in, to ensure that his mission would be fulfilled. And that's why when we get to the Lord's Supper, um, when Jesus talks about the Lord's Supper in Matthew 26, notice the words he says, when he institutes the supper, he says, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again in the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. In other words, there was a blood sacrifice that had to happen to make sure this promise was completed. And the blood sacrifice wasn't cutting animals in half and walking through the middle. It was on the back of Jesus. That his blood represented by the cup here was poured out so that we could have the forgiveness of sins going all the way back to the promise of Abraham. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you forgiveness for people that don't deserve forgiveness. And the bread representing his body that was broken for us, destroyed for us so that he could give us life. He could give us the promise of resurrection. So when we come to this table this morning, we realize that these stories of Abraham, this story of Jesus are, are really one big story. Now these promises are fulfilled. And that's why Paul in Galatians chapter three says this. And I'll close with this. In verse seven, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham and daughters, we could say, and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. When you put your faith in Jesus, you become a son or daughter of Abraham. That story becomes your story. It's our story. This God who comes to undeserving people who makes promises that he will fulfill and has nothing to do with you or me. So when we come to the table, all of those stories come together. Every week when we come to the table, all of those stories come together. A God of promise who never breaks his promises. 
And taking the Lord's Supper this morning isn't about fixing yourself up or getting your life right. It's about faith in Jesus and his work and what he's done for us, the one who fulfills all his promises.